Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. Speaking of uh, cultures of consciousness, I've uh, spent up, stayed up late last night on uh, Netflix watching the uh, new Errol Morris uh, documentary, Wormwood, uh, which is about the uh, fabled uh, likely murder of uh, Dr. Frank Olson in the early 1950s after he had been uh, dosed without his knowledge by LSD by some of his CIA uh, compatriots. And it's not only a, a fascinating historical study of the times and of, uh, of, of the various things that have happened over the era as we learn more about MKUltra and other kinds of uh, mind control programs and um, CIA uh, uh, nastiness, but it's a fascinating study of what happens to consciousness, what happens to personality when you dive into the labyrinth of mirrors around uh, intelligence agencies, mind, issues of mind control, uh, uh, lying. And uh, it's a brilliant, brilliant documentary. It involves collage. It weaves ideas of Hamlet woven through. There's a sort, it's also kind of a meditation on what does it mean to know too much or too little. Uh, I don't usually start out the show with uh, mentioning reviews, but I think I might do it a little bit more because there's a lot of stuff that comes across my desk that I really uh, think people should pay attention to. And so check out Wormwood by uh, Errol Morris on uh, Netflix. Uh, luckily, today we have a, a much more pleasant story about the intersection of, uh, of science, uh, consciousness, and uh, contemporary culture. Uh, Bruce Dahmer is a, a good friend of mine. I've known him for many years, and uh, most of the time I see Bruce, it's at a party or a festival, and he's uh, definitely one of the most liveliest dressed people around, uh, like some <laughs> kind of uh, time-traveling uh, uh, Alice in Wonderland wizard uh, with amazing brocade uh, coats and uh, always fascinating headgear. He's He's quite a wild character. He's a, a longtime uh, burner and a classic uh, OG freak geek, Bay Area freak geek, uh, crossing those uh, two worlds as he works as a computer scientist. He did early work on uh, computer interfaces and virtual worlds. As a scientist, he's worked uh, for, for NASA. So he's, he's the real deal, but he's also a real freak. Uh, and it made uh, his recent um, uh, explorations even more interesting to me because um, it's something that combines interests that he's had in, throughout his life uh, with some really real breakthrough science. And what we'll be talking about is uh, what some people are calling a, a Copernican revolution in our ideas about the origins of life uh, on the planet with inside, inside, of course, the scientific framework. And uh, just the stuff we'll be talking about was recently on the cover of Scientific American in August of last year. Fascinating uh, article that talks about Bruce's work as part of a, a larger uh, team of, of a, a growing number of people who are interested in a new model of uh, where life came from. So with no further ado, Bruce, welcome to Expanding Mind. Thank you, uh, Eric. And by the way, um, it, along with one of my favorite miniseries, which is Vikings, 
they depict my ancestors because the pronunciation of my last name is actually Damer, uh of the sea. And it was the Vikings who invaded northern France and then moved into England. So the Eng- Anglified version is Damer, but the Frank- Frankish version is Damer. And it was wonderful to hear them actors actually speaking Frankish in the in that Viking series. Yeah, I liked Vikings, but I, I, I managed to, to produce neither of those two pronunciations. <laughs> so I'm, I might go with Damer because it has that nice lilt to it. And uh, I, I never thought about the, the, the phrase from the sea, which is kind of uh, ironic given our, our, our topic of conversation because the, the conventional model of the origins of life is, is that it's Damer, it's from the sea. Uh, and one of the, uh, the that's one of the apple carts you guys are upsetting with your with your new views. So maybe just to take a little bit um, a, a little step back, what is the the more conventional view, or at least since over the last few decades, about the origins of life? And then uh, and and then what's the 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 kind of baseline radical shift of the model you guys have been coming up with? Yeah, um, actually, the original, the originator of thinking about the origin of life is actually Charles Darwin. In a letter in 1871, uh, he talked about some warm little pond somewhere full of phosphoric salts and electricity and such that a a protein compound should form and become more complex. And he actually nailed it. That's the actual way we believe life began. And since 1871, our field went down several rabbit holes. First, there was the sort of primordial soup of Oparin and uh, Haldane. And then there was the spark chamber experiments of Miller and Urey, which were interesting, but actually off track in the, you know, for the, they got the atmosphere wrong. But that started our field, that sparked our field. And then in the late 70s, a exploration team found these black smokers at the bottom of the of the Pacific in that case, and uh, somebody casually mentioned that maybe life could start there, but you know the chemist it, it, so because it's a great big broiling system of chemicals and some energy gradients and whatnot, and the chemists never liked that. The chemists were like, well, we would never be able to do our chemistry in those conditions for the fragile, fragile early phases of polymerization and life's little protocells. So Dave Deemer, my scientific mentor and partner, you know, you always need mentors, don't you? Uh, and he, he uh, discovered a system in the 90s that if you dry little pools down in the presence of membranes and lipids, they squeeze these little building blocks together, amino acids and uh, the nucleic acids, and then they can actually make the building blocks of life without having life. So it, it solved this amazing conundrum that nature couldn't you know, make its own building blocks because it didn't have the tools, but there was a natural tool, which is the cycling pool. Well, that, that seems the, the, really the core of it. I, when, I remember when you were ta- talking, when, I, when you first started to talk about this stuff with me, I was like, what? What's the big deal? So what? So it's a sea vent or it's a pool? What's the... But it's this idea of cycling, that the notion of cycling of as these pools, you know, become more wet, as they dry out, as they get moist, as they get wet again, and they move through this, this cycling pattern, it, it creates the 
kind of laboratory, if you will, almost for a sort of endless series of, of natural experiments, uh, some of which can bring these materials together in a way, hypothetically, that uh, could provide all the building blocks for life. So where did that, that you know, talk about the, the cycle, because that seems to be the, the sort of the key of the, of the, of the vision. Yeah, the, this cycle idea, this is why uh, somebody at a conference last year raised their hand and said, this is a kind of new Copernican revolution. And I asked why. And he said, because you may have discovered the cycling system that as it turns, it creates everything. Because in a sense, the cycling system that initially turned through wet-dry is driven by the rotation of the planet and the orbit of our, our Earth around the sun. So the sun comes up and bathes the, the, the land in, in energy and cycles energy through it and dehydrates. You know, so that's the, a physical cycling engine. We sort of call it like an engine of creation or a genesis engine. But it turns out that everything is spun out of that cycle, including all of evolutionary biology, uh, all the way up into even culture, technology, and possibly even models for consciousness are driven by this tripartite, I call it a tripartite cycling engine. And I've recently been presenting at conferences on consciousness, uh, the Science of Consciousness Conference and the Science and Non-Duality Conference. And because of this, this Copernican challenge, the person says, have you found a new center I've been doing a lot of thought experiments and come up with a general plan or a general code for the cycling system. And I'm challenging those communities, you know, find anything that's not explainable by a cycle of these three properties. Well, that, that's, uh, I mean, I really want to get to that stuff. And I, I've seen your, your, your lectures on and trying and tying these things to, to culture and to, and to consciousness and, and the whole way that this offers sort of a, a different kind of systems theory in the sense that it's, it's describing abstractly a system of this three-stage cycling, but it seems to be able to apply to many, many different uh, uh, domains of reality and at different levels of scale and time. Um, so it's fascinating, but staying with the, the, the evolutionary biology model, what, what are we talking about when we talk about the cycles in these, you know, early hot springs, 3 billion years ago, <laughs> you know, bubbling away on the earth's surface? What is the, the cycle, what does the cycling do? What are its, what are its phases? Well, here's how it works. Uh, say if you were to go in your hot tub or jacuzzi or a hot spring, and you put some bubble bath solution in. So you had a nice bubbly jacuzzi. Uh, and then the jacuzzi sort of drained and dried down. The bubble bath solution would make the bubbles more stable and there'd be a mass of them at the bottom. But then eventually they'd dry out and form a layer called a bathtub ring, you know, that you can see in any, any cycling system of hot water. And between those layers, between that little slick film, is the chemical factory, the miracle of nature's stitching together of trillions upon trillions of polymers of RNA uh, peptides, which are your protoproteins, and possibly even self-assembling DNA. So what you've got then in, in your dry little jacuzzi is this massive random sequence library 
And then when the jacuzzi fills back up, these these random sequences get trapped in bubbles, which we call protocells, which then float into the solution. And most of them just pop, you know, bubbles pop. But the ones that are stabilized by the by a random choice of, of the combination of these molecules, they're stable, so they end up coming back down. They're like bath, bubble bath solution. And then they deliver the contents of that random sequence back for another go round. And, and those, those random things are no longer random. They do a job. They stabilize their, their protocell. And so they may get sequenced again and, and produced again. And we see this now chemically in the lab. We can actually do this in a, in a few hours of cycling. And we recently did it in a hot spring environment uh, out in the field in a volcanic hot spring. And it's uh and it and it holds up. So it's it's sort of like you get a kind of um, well, I mean, cycling is obviously the word, but it's allowed to sort of uh, feed on itself, and it gives you the 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 engine, you know, the the dynamic thing that's pushing it through time. So it's not just throwing a bunch of elements inside of a of a pool, and somehow or another they eventually want uh, you know smash up it, into each other. It's that the the cycling that the pool itself is going through creates a, almost like a petri dish that's able to that has memory because it's able to sustain some of its discoveries from previous cycles uh, and build upon them uh, over time. Yeah, you, you've nailed it, Eric, because what the pool gives you, that the protocells give you a miraculous, almost seemingly miraculous property called probability tweaking. So because the polymers are in their little bubbles, they're more likely to get together. They're more likely to react and do things. That's what your your body and all of nature does. It crowds things together to increase the probability of things happening. And then when the protocells are all themselves in together in the little sludge, we call it a gel or a progenote, they start messaging each other. So one thing happening in one protocell gets distributed to other ones. And the third thing, and you've just identified as that, is on top of that system of, of, of uh, probability increasing and message trafficking, you can get the emergence of a memory system. So you get these little templates uh, that will emerge, we predict, that actually are the first genetic uh, genotype uh, type response. And then the system now, in a sense, knows itself you know, not in a conscious way, but it can carry forward the, the experiments with a previous understanding or a previous recording or coding, and it lifts the living world into being. And this is still how the living world rolls. And I, I might put it to the listeners, also culture, technology, and everything else. It uses these three things in tandem. Well, how do you define the three things? When you talk about three things, it's, uh, do you say them just cl- uh, like the, the, the specific names for them? So a probability engine that it takes things that are unlikely and gradually makes them more likely and makes them then actual. Uh, so that's one process. And then message passing, communications, uh, control sequences, in the case language. And then the third is a memory, a recording of what was done on the last round. You, you know, know what's, what's fascinating about it, when, just to hear you describe this process, it's like 
I, I, there's a there's a sort of you know geochemical and biological you know protobiological language going on of you know material molecules things we know you know lipids peptides etc cetera, etc cetera. but at the same time it, it sounds like you're describing a kind of um, a sort of abstract almost a, a sort of virtual system you might set up in a computer that there's a kind of computer logic to it whether it's this notion of booting up the idea you know you can set all these processes in motion and then it creates this larger systemic effect or, or even just the attention to cycles and innovation you know in the article uh on the scientific american they describe these as innovation pools and it's such a contemporary metaphor you know for the way that we're understanding innovation in a human sense or in technological sense or a post-human sense to be frank um where we're, we're almost like we're, we're analyzing what are the conditions necessary to create dynamic possibilities and to have them actually you know uh, get their feet on the ground and, and start to change reality and it's sort of like a i get the sense of an almost like a a kind of breakdown between disciplines between geology and biology and computer science and systems theory it's a, it's quite a rich way of talking about these things yeah and you know in, in my recent uh, i had lunch with jeffrey kripal who you know very well so very well in uh at rice university we were talking about this and i was saying is you no know, is this a centering you know can can you uh for instance, uh, the reason why AIs have been so crippled in the last, you know, all attempts to build AIs are really attempts to build fast table lookup algorithms, right? AIs generally, unless they, they're using some kind of neural network system, they can learn a little bit, but they don't get that far. And they're very specialized and they're very breakable. And so one of the things I was talking about with Jeff was this idea is an idea for an open-ended system of, of creativity of innovation as you as you pointed out because it can it boots up from scratch uh, and it boots up from a very noisy environment and it surfs that noise it surfs the second law of thermodynamics to to boot itself up and staying ever ahead of degradation by reinvention and and ultimately we will be able to build AIs that are that use the power of evolution, you know, they will take a lot more processing power. There will be slower growers, but they will be the true open-ended learning system that all of sci-fi and, you know, Jeff's studies uh, point to people being afraid of the blob, but we're nowhere near making a blob uh, as yet. So, so is the, are you saying that a lot? You know, a lot we hear so much about AI now. It's in the mainstream media, and people are worried about it, and this and that. And there's you know a lot to say about that. I don't want to get completely off base, but I'm also interested in your ideas here. Um, I are is is it the idea that in a way we ain't seen nothing yet? Like that a lot of that that you know machine learning and these sort of, you know, using huge databases in order to, to find patterns and use those patterns in order to extrapolate or whatever is actually not as interesting as what might happen when the kind of cycling process that you're describing um, is, is manifested in, in, in code or in, in, in digital environments. Yeah, I, I think that future generations are going to look back at people like Ray Kurzweil, you know, sorry to say, 
people with all these pronouncements, they're going to laugh at us because it's very much like us looking at the author of Frankenstein saying it's laughable that a system made out of pistons, you know, could get up and walk like a man and, you know, have emotional crises and express irony. You know, we laugh at that. We laugh at visions of 1930s, you know, War of the Worlds type technology, which was based on not even transistors. I mean, it was all sort of a clunky uh, 1930s style electronics, you know. And I think that the future generations are going to laugh at us believing that our primitive, you know, single pipe serial processing computing systems could actually do anything other than become faster widgets, specialized widgets. So it, it will take a, a complete role in computer science to realize how limited the capacities of current architectures are for really doing the real thing that nature does all the time. And talk a little bit about the, you know, booting up is such a fascinating concept, like emerging from, from, you know, from computer science, but also kind of suggesting a, a worldview or a world of possibilities where you just get enough things moving and other things emerge and whether we think you know we go to the big level and we think of that perhaps consciousness is really just being booted up by certain processes in the brain if you believe that it, it's an emergent property um, but also in, you know in in our in our own lives and how societies operate um, it's you know it's it's counterintuitive in a way and yet we see examples of it uh, all the time and it seems like your cycling process is, is in a way almost one of the ultimate examples of, of a booting up uh, process. Yeah, when I was invited by Stuart Hameroff to come and deliver a plenary at his conference on, the, it's called the Science of Consciousness, I thought, what am I doing there? I, I've not read a single, I know nothing about consciousness. I don't even know if I have it, you know. So I did a thought experiment where I asked, do you need consciousness or something like it present at the origin of life to like a guy in a white beard with a, a big staff that says, you know, move five, that carbon atom five angstroms to the left, you know, an organizing principle. And in this dream, I was, the, the voice came into the dream saying, no, that's an unnecessary complication. Let me show you how you were made. And it showed me this, this basically this triangle. It showed me just through demonstration of the first protocell in the in the undulating plane of predictable physics, changing probability. And then it showed another protocell next to it, and communications across the membrane. And then it showed a mass of protocells. And it said, "What do you see?" And I said, "Well, there's it's like a nonlinear exploding network." And it said, "Yes, it outruns reality. It outruns physics." Now what comes next, it asked, and I said, some kind of memory? And it said, bingo, and showed me informational polymers. And then the whole thing is a Cartesian plot running and running and running, and then the three-system three thing going. And it said, this thing winds up and builds something very large, even in the progenian, even in the era before the cell, cells divide. Right in the earliest phases of life, this system becomes huge. It creates something called the field. And you, you know, you monkeys are instruments into the field. 
but you have your filters and your biases. So you only see little fragments or feel little fragments of it. So don't name it. Don't, uh, don't assume that you know it. Just experience it. Just grow into it. You know, don't, don't, uh, don't predicate it in any way. You're just coming into awareness of it. So perhaps that is a, a story way of addressing uh, what you were talking about, how consciousness might emerge out of this tripartite system. Yeah, well, it's funny. I mean, I, I've you know spoken to you many times before. We've ha- I've had you on the show before, and and uh, I know that you have an unusual imagination. You have an unusual uh, consciousness, and so when you describe the story you just you just gave us um, about having this thought experiment, and then it turns into a kind of dialogic kind of reaction and you're sort of seeing answers to your questions you know this sounds to me something uh, you know as 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 much like a a psychedelic vision as a you know tip uh, a traditional you know gedanken experiments you know where it's somewhere between physics and a kind of visionary process so when you describe that kind of that that particular question you asked and those set of answers that you were getting um, is that something you kind of like just get going in your own mind? Is it that you find that there's a kind of answering that some of these deep questions get answered for you in, in sort of almost a visionary register, if you will? Yeah, I found I started this practice around when I was about nine years old. And I, I realized there's like two ways of doing things. One is to try to figure out the world. And my little realmy mind would go out into the world and realize it's just too complex to actually work out what to do or even where to walk on the street from rational processes. So I decided to just use an intuitive barometer that was always running inside me. And so that that became my my guide. And that actually guided me into visionary states. You know, when I was nine, I would lie in my bed underneath my brother. We were in a bunk. Um, and he was up above, and I would, I would just uh, see all these flashes in front of my closed eyelids, and I would dial my consciousness back, I dial my my thinking mind back far enough that the flashes would turn into worlds. You know, they were they were color TV, and we didn't have a color TV. You know, we had didn't even have a black and white TV, I don't think. But uh, so that I coupled this idea of doing things through intuition and just waiting for messages to come with this visionary sort of renderer farm and drew thousands of pictures of worlds in my teen years and then used, used that dialing in, you know, TV mechanism in my virtual worlds work and the spacecraft work, coding work, and now the origin of life. So it's it it is like a Gedanken experiment. It's like Einstein running alongside the beam of light, you know, or or Crick's visions, or you know, all of these scientific mystics seem to use this this space or these tools. And and I was fortunate enough to make that decision early on, and and then just refine and dial in the tools. Yeah, it's remarkable about about learning to trust uh, in, intuition. Um, uh, it's it's funny for me is that I'm more, I'm much more conscious of it now and that I was lucky in that 
um, a lot of uh, my just my thoughts, usually my intuitions are about other people, about cultures, about ideas, about places, about the forces that are dominating a, a given situation, less uh, scientific than than yours, although you also have that other stuff. Um, but uh, it, it, in retrospect, I realized that a lot of the things that I did, a lot of what made me a good journalist, a lot of what made, made me have a lot of really interesting friends was that I was actually allowing my intuition to make decisions, but I wasn't that necessarily that aware of it. And as I've gotten older, I've become more aware of it, even to the point of view of, of turning to it, like in the midst of, of sometimes challenging situations and going, okay, I'm not going to reason my way out of this one. This intuition stuff's been uh, working pretty well, so let's... Let's go with it. Uh, and and the, that way of using that, even with these um, complicated scientific questions that you're asking about, is really remarkable. When did you first start asking questions about the origin of life? When did that become one of the things that you were, you know, gadonkening? <laughs> gadonkening. Well, it was, it was a specific day in the spring of 1976, and I was 14. I turned 14. And I was walking out in the sagebrush hills around Kamloops, British Columbia, Canada, yay Canada, the great pink north, uh, and a flower was coming up through the just frozen ground, and it was a mariposa lily, and they were my favorite flowers, and it just was unfolding into this fantastic tripartite, you know, three-part lilies generally are that way. And I said to myself, my mind asked, well, this obviously came from a bulb or a seed that was a simpler structure, and it unwound into this complex structure. So there's some kind of instructions. I didn't know about code, and we didn't have computers in our town. And then I stood up and realized all of these plants come from this instruction thing. And there had to have been, and then my mind went back, through time searching for there had to have been a first seed there had to have been a single one then i stood up and started walking up the hill and realized wait a minute that first seed had to be made out of parts you know unless you believed in a god and all seeing god you know ordering stuff from the sears catalog uh that all seeing not not being an all-seeing god there had to be parts that just fell together and then self-assembled into the first code. And I thought, well, this is not possible. And then I recalled that Albert Einstein did these thought experiments. And I thought, well, this is the coolest thing to, to even think about for a nerdy kid. I'm going to work on this for 90 years. I remember that figure. This is going to be my entire life if I live long. I'm going to work on it all my life because it's so interesting. And suddenly there was this bundle of molecules in the air in my sort of my third eye. I didn't know what a third eye was, but, and I, I saw it and I thought, oh, it's a thought experiment. It's come as a result, it's my first one. And I was about to ask it the question, how did you self-assemble? I mean, show me the pieces coming together, like Lego, you know, or Meccano that you would use as a 14 year old. And it then turned to me and asked me a question, saying, figure out how I made a copy of myself. And then my little brain went to an automobile factory saying, well, machines need big thing, make big machines to make copies of them, like a car needs a factory. And I don't see a, a, a bigger machine around you. 
So that's implausible. And it winked. It winked at me and said, work on it. And in 2013, I saw the, the system. I saw how this actually went down chemically. I had another visionary and nothing more than after yoga and breath work one morning, I just fell into this reverie and I saw the cycling system we just talked about and realized it was small machines working in concert in a network that lifted the big machine into being. You know what's great about when I when I hear about the visionary dimension of what you're talking about and this kind of intuitive um, flashes and even this sort of dialogue with the mystery that is able to articulate, uh, articulate itself and lead you on and even kind of play with you a little bit. Uh, you know, the, the, w when you think about those kinds of your kind of, uh, of direct experience with that domain inside the history of science, people generally think about kooks, you know, like, oh, they come up with, they have this crazy visions and then they come up with a zero point energy machine or whatever, da, da, da. Whereas our t t typical image of scientists, even if we know about Einstein's thought experiments, et cetera, et cetera, our typical I image of scientists is they're much more by the book. They're not really looking at the imagination. They're not doing yoga and then trying to like talk to the other world. So one of the things that's always blown me away is that you, you know, I know you in the context of, you know, visionary culture and Burning Man and crazy ideas and Terrence McKenna. We're both, you know, uh, deep, deeply marked by, by our, our friendship with Terrence. Uh, but then you also operate in these worlds that are just full of, of like hardcore scientists who are concerned about their appearance, don't want to have anything to do with visionary yoga or anything like that. So how do you interface with that world? Like how how when you had these kind of uh, the, these these senses, this uh, sort of download about cycling processes, what did you do then? Did you did you reach out and talk to people who are working in similar fields? How did you kind of build momentum uh, around this process, because it, it, it's now there's tons of people involved in it. Uh, but uh, how did how did you kind of go with this stuff? And, how, and I'm just kind of curious how you show up to these people, if you know what I mean. Oh well, you know I do something I call reskinning. So I, I I have a practice I sort of call realm bending. Where and I started this when I was a teenager too. I wanted to get inside the skin of others. I wanted to simulate other people to see their point of view, and I became pretty good at it. Uh, I felt that the, the greatest thing you could do is be the, an empath and become the other so that you completely saw their, their world because then you could grok their reality and you could then network it all with other realities and you could create a meta-understanding meta that would help shift entire things. So I've been doing this for 35 years did it in, you know, the super nerdy world of IT software, and did it in uh, at NASA, uh, did it in anthropology, you know, did it in the festival culture to some degree. Uh, but what happens, say for instance, if you have a visionary idea, and this is a kind of a guide for people out there, if you have a visionary idea about something. And then you just stick with the vision and you don't test it. You don't go to an expert. You don't get it dialed in and you just stick with it. Then you're attaching to a story that will take you down a rabbit hole. You know, Terrence had, had this 2012 Eschaton thing that took him down the rabbit hole. It, 
it paid the bills, but it was really nonsense, you know. And uh, so if you have a vision and you find an expert uh, that helps you dial it in, and in my case, it was David Deemer at UC Santa Cruz, a world-renowned biophysicist uh, or membrane physicist, uh, physical chemist. Uh, but then you, you get it tested against the metal of, of the field. Otherwise, it's just going to be, be go into the spinning into the world of story. And, and you become that person. So, you know, over the years, I just became those people. I could speak their language. I read all the papers. I went to all the conferences. I ended up running parts of all their conferences. Now I'm part of the organization that works on origin of life. But I was just in Galveston, Texas with 150 of these very reductionist dialed in chemists. And so while I'm there, I am them, you know, I'm co-chairing their meeting and introducing the people. And then I'm talking to everyone to create a grand synthesis now. But it's just, you just allow your, you put yourself on the shelf and you just allow yourself to absorb into another culture and they'll accept you. They'll take take you in as their own. There's a few mutants in there. There's a few freaks in there. And occasionally you'll connect with them, the people that use thought experiments and whatnot. And truthfully, many of the the dialed-in bench scientists, they know that they're just doing technician work, right? They know that they need a mystic to enter their field like Francis Crick you know, and give them the structure of DNA. They're kind of waiting around for that madman or madwoman to show up to allow the breakthrough to happen. And they grudgingly accept them, you know, and and give them Nobel Prizes and things on occasion. So, you know, if science did not have the mystics or the mutants, uh, it, it would just grind itself up on in techn technical work. And just adding dots to to eyes and adding stuff to bibliographies so it wouldn't have the big breakthroughs uh, this is uh, uh, reminding me very, uh, very much of one of my uh, my favorite books about the history of science um, uh, uh, Kaiser's book how the hippies save physics um, have you read that Bruce I, I've read around in it I actually see Nick Herbert once yeah. a week so he's a He's part of that cadre. Oh, definitely. I, I got to I got to meet Nick finally at, at uh, a Robert Anton Wilson event in, in Santa Cruz last year. It was really, really wonderful. Anyway, it's just a fascinating book because he's making a you know he's he's a, he's a scientist and a historian of science, and he's saying, look, when all of these uh, when all these uh, you know psychedelic physicists in the early 1970s who were interested in the paranormal and consciousness, but were also you know real trained physicists. When they started thinking all these crazy possibilities about entanglement, about information travel and time, and da, 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 um, yeah, some of their ideas went too far. Some of them were rabbit holes, as you as you point out. Um, but that even the rabbit holes drove questions that then more conventional science had to deal with, at least to say why they were wrong, and and some of them were, and but in so doing. It enlivened the whole field. And mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a fascinating, I never really thought about it because you think about like, oh, well, there's the mad visionary and some of their ideas are true and maybe that 
that other people pick up on it and some of them are crazy and nobody deals with it. But it's that the, the whole practice itself draws the field inevitably towards other questions that wouldn't have been asked if you didn't have that, the so-called mad visionary, uh, which is the, really a fascinating yeah, thing. It's completely fascinating. And it's, it's the growing boundary of, of human intellect, really. And, and in science, the good thing about science is it does have a mechanism to, to throw out the trash. You know, there's, there's so much, there's stuff that there are people who are not trained or qualified, uh, who shouldn't be at meetings, who sometimes get in, but then they get pretty much, it's a self-correcting thing, unlike spiritual practices for the most part, or other parts of our culture, there's no self-correcting editing mechanism. And that's why I just love science, you know, and, you know, going to, to, to these conferences on consciousness, you get there in the front row is Deepak Chopra, but there is a neuroscientist who's studying mirror neurons with fMRIs and stuff. So it's interesting, you know, but the, I would actually, frankly, more rather talk to the the scientists, because I know I'm not going to get tech, you know, babble. I'm I'm going to get things that are grounded in, in knowledge and and that are more conservative. Yeah. Despite, he... despite the fact that I'm kind of a you know one of these crazies in the sense, but I'm actually very conservative. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a wonderful balance. And and from that perspective, we've we've we mentioned Terence a couple times. Um, I'd like to hear you, 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 you talk about Terence from that perspective. And what I mean is that, you know, on the one hand, uh, Terence knew a reasonable amount about science, systems theory, biology. Uh, he was, you know, a huge fan of Scientific American. He told me once, you know, Scientific American, that's the most psychedelic publication out there. He was very interested in science, and he was also very skeptical. He was very skeptical about uh, mystical claims, about gurus, about you know, higher states of consciousness in the, as the East understands it and stuff. So in many ways, he was, he was a naturalist in, in, ori- in his orientation. And yet, at the same time, he was, of course, had all these crazy ideas. And those ideas may or may not have been important in the overall picture of things. You know, I, I sometimes ask myself, did he need the time wave which I always thought was bunk. From the moment I, I heard about it, it didn't smell good. I never enjoyed it. It was I was always annoyed when we went there when hearing him talk and he'd get into the time wave. I'm like, this is just not... It's There's something interesting here the way that the tarot is interesting. I mean, I, I, I like a lot of sort of whatever, non-rational or, you know, quasi-rational, trans-rational systems of symbols and imagery and correspondences and association. That's part of the pleasure of you know, supernatural thinking or magical thinking or participatory thinking, however you want to talk about it. That's cool stuff. But it, it ain't science. It's not telling us anything about what's going to happen in 2012. And uh, so, but sometimes I wonder whether Terrence needed that. He needed something that looked like an actual theory in order to motivate the rest of what he was doing because somehow he, I don't know why. Um, so I, I'd be curious, given these these questions that we're talking about right now about science and visions and pulling discourses in different ways and uh how you see how you see terence vis-a-vis the scientific imagination you know it's it it went back to one particular day in the late 70s when you know i certainly didn't know terence but terence and dennis were at a scientific meeting i think it was in berkeley and 
you know, Dennis is, no, he's a scientist. And Dennis went through the training. He went that way. Terrence at the time buttonholed a keynote speaker and for an hour talked about the time wave. And the this older professor was looking at this fuzzy-faced, you know, intense, obviously intelligent, but clearly misguided young man. And at the end of the hour, you know, patiently said to him, young man, your theory is not only false, it's not even falsifiable, you know. And so I think that that was the, that was the moment where Terrence left the dock, you know, where his ship set sail. I think that he was bounced off of that pretty strongly. And I, I've talked about this with Dennis. There was that aura moment where, to, where Terrence wanted to be accepted. He wanted to be in the academy, you know, of course, he ended up being an incredible scholar of Joyce and all these things, very much in the academy in some ways, even though as an outsider. So roll the clock forward. We're sitting in his house in 1999, uh, where we had just sort of swapped roles. You know, I had gone into his world's previous two weeks, and he had gone into my world's. We had done a virtual world's uh, powwow. Uh, from the house in Hawaii in, in Avatar space, because that was a dream he, he had had, and we sort of made it come true. And then we we were up half the night talking, and I said to Terrence, you know, Terrence, are you really, you know, you've got to be kidding about this eschatons and singularities and stuff, right? And in the back of my mind was seeing Terrence sitting in front of his crappy Macintosh Quadra, wherever it was, barely able to do email and that this man never written a line of code he doesn't understand technology he's reading articles in omni magazine and proclaiming that the you know the eschaton is upon us and that it's going to be technical singularities which of course you know uh, ralph and uh, rupert had gotten pretty much fed up with that too and i then i just decided to, to explain to him the difference between a glass of water in his Macintosh, that a glass of water had a zillion trillion things going on all at once, all probabilistic and stochastic, bouncing balls, bouncing ping pong balls, and that in that, from that glass of water can emerge something as powerful and complex as the living world, whereas his Macintosh is like an hourglass, taking grains of sand from the screen as he clicks on things on the pixels and funneling them down through a, a processor, the CPU, into the hard drive, and there's grains of sand piled up there, and the thing is clunky and fragile and, you know, completely underpowered, and that, in fact, you know, the living world could never emerge. There would never be anything that would emerge that would have sort of self-awareness, let alone you know, even the complexity of a slime mold inside digital architectures, especially the internet, which is even more clunky in terms of protocols and things. And at, the, at you know, at late at night, I think then it was, or it was at dawn or something, Terrence turned to me and, because we were talking about Y2K, and I said, look, nothing's going to happen in Y2K, you know, nothing at all. And Terrence uh I said, do you want, you know, the thought was, do you really want to see a, a new age hippie Y2K in 2012 when none of this stuff makes any sense at all? And he said, well, I hope they don't all, all don't take it all too literally. 
you know, so so there was the you know the flip side of of parents. But here's the interesting thing, Eric. Uh, fuzzy, fuzzy-headed ideas like this. I resolved that night to say, well, Terence talks about, you know, concrescence into novelty and how things complexify. But just sort of as a story, I'm going to actually go and track this thing down and figure out how it works. So it was my entire PhD work came to that. Uh, where we built the evolution grid that ran at UC San Diego for seven months, grinding 30 cores into the ground, simulating that glass of water, trying to find out what happens when a bond forms, and then another one, and then another one. Why do the, the bonds after the first one form faster and faster? There's something going on. It's Stuart Kaufman's correlated universe. And the PhD actually showed it. We found the staircasing hill climbing algorithm. I called it the uh, cosmic wiggle. You know, Terence talked about the cosmic giggle. I call it, we found the cosmic wiggle. It's stochastic hill climbing. This is how the universe complexifies against the degradating forces. And this is, it goes straight into biology and uses the same freaking formula to complexify and make new things in evolution. So but that wh- woolly, woolly-headed does, idea yeah. led to that. So, No, that's great. But wh- where does the uh, 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 the speed-up happen? How does that, how does the, does it know, how does it, is there a quickening of these processes over, over iterated, as they iterate over time? There, as far as I can tell, and this is my friends in complexity science, basically told me, don't try to do the math. You know, I'm not good at math, so that was good news to me. Uh, neither was Terrence, by the way. Uh, he said, do the simulations. Simulate the soups and see what you can find that emerges from them, what properties emerge. And so there is a quickening. There, uh, What Stuart calls it, Stuart Kaufman, this correlated base function, that as soon as you get the first bond formed or the first relationship the landscape goes from super random points, you know, little jaggedy points of noise, and they start to develop ridges between the, the points. So it's like the Himalayas have foothills that have ridges that go up to the Himalayas. So you can climb a mountain because it's correlated, because there's ridges between peaks. Same thing in evolution. You know, the, the finch's beak changes just a little, and then the finches find their way across that ridge and are able to crack the harder nut. You know, this is a Darwin's insight in the Galapagos, where I just was in November. I went to the Galapagos. Oh, well, that sounds wonderful. Hey, so listen, we have about seven minutes left, so I'm going to bring up an enormous uh, uh, other topic, which we mentioned earlier, and I wanted to make sure at least we can get a, a few words in, which is about consciousness. Now, as you said, you're not an expert in consciousness science and neuroscience. It's not stuff you've spent a lot of time uh, looking at, and, and you're also open at least to the kinds of really far-out stuff that you would see at a science and non-duality conference or at Burning Man, for, all, for, all, for that matter. So how do you see conscious, the, the topic of consciousness being illuminated by the cycling vision that you've come up with in terms of the origin of life? Now, that's a, that's a big one. And I'm actually doing a webinar starting on February 18th for SAND, four Sundays in a row. And oh, here's a big plug uh, 
on this very thing, you know, how how does consciousness get informed? And I think it's here here's let's flip that in a way and say if if we if we found cycling properties that booted up the living world and made this network, the primary mover of the living world is still that first property P probability. So the living world is rockingly good at, at manipulating probability and bringing improbable events into actuality. So from slimes of single-celled organisms, we suddenly have animals and plants, and we have an asteroid impact, and then we have different animals and plants. And it just keeps exploring space, and then it creates humans, and it, humans create these incredibly improbable things like a cell phone. You know, which in the history of the cosmos, a cell phone emerging is like a stupendous thing. It's a one-time thing in the history of the freaking cosmos. And it's done by this probability lifting engine. And here's, here's the pay dirt for everybody on the podcast. I think you can shape it mentally. I think that you can, you can have a strong intention or an imagination or a dream, and you will shape valleys of probability ahead of you. And if you have that intention, somehow this field rolls little coins down into those valleys. And if you're going along like playing Doom and you pick up the objects, it then rolls open more valleys and you keep going and going and you're led to the most improbable, miraculous outcome in your life. And that we actually, that is the greatest tool that human beings have, have and will ever have because it's this power of intention and imagination and vision and, and clear, clear sticking with it. Like Einstein stuck with his theories, you know, for 50 years and it kept rolling, the coin kept rolling toward him. And then of course it was beyond him, you know, the grand unified theory, but people who lead lives like this accomplish stupendous things and they really shape the world, like the Steve Jobses of the world and whatnot. So I would say that Consciousness is a, is a field of intention that shapes probability because that's the entire operating system uh, core uh, code of, of the living world, which this is consciousness emerges. Wow, that's amazing stuff. And what I really like about it, too, is it, it's a very gr uh, grounded uh, version of a kind of uh, uh, Geek freak optimism that I, I feel is is uh, in somewhat uh, of a decline <laughs> at our moment. You know, there's a lot of a lot of grim things on the horizon, a lot of fear, and a lot of uh, you know, there's ways in which the the kind of Bay Area technological uh, mystical counterculture that you and I both participated in, albeit in very different ways, um, has as sort of facing uh, some less pleasant outcomes of uh, the kind of Silicon Valley uh, ecosystem and what it's, what it's done and doing to our world. Um, and you, you've given us a, a good slice of a, a way of thinking about the role that consciousness and intention uh, continue to play in the exploding probability space of our you know, contemporary uh, vertigo uh, before the future. Um, are you, uh, this is an utterly too simple question, but we just got a minute or so left. Are you, in this sense, a, an optimist? In, in a sense, I hold a position that things are always unfolding and that 
there's continuous flow of astounding things. And if you say, pay attention to too much noise in the news, or you get yourself depressed or anxious, you shake the field and you can't, you, you can't go forward, right? You're, now you're down a rabbit hole. But if you just pay no attention to any of that and just aim your sight on the horizon at that target, you'll pull reality in. And it really doesn't matter what else is going on. You know, Bach wrote his cello concertos and in Europe there was just absolutely ridiculous politics and bloodshed happening. So just, you know, that's what we need. We need the function of people who are clear-eyed and looking at that uh, beautiful eventuality and bringing it in. Oh, that's uh, that's that's good. Really, really good medicine for us uh, at, at this moment, Bruce. Um, you've mentioned your uh, the upcoming webinar. webinar. Anything else that uh, people might be looking at in terms of uh, this origin of life stuff? Yeah, um, all kinds of things are happening. We're forming an institute called the Bioda Institute to fund all the investigators, the young investigators. Um, I'm holding more regular meetings and brainstormings here. So people want to come to Ancient Oaks Farm. And I'm going to be putting a book together at some point after the grand theory paper is done this year. I'm going to synthesize the whole thing in a grand hypothesis with a dozens of authors. But some somewhere there's a book in this. Wonderful. I look forward to all of that. Hey, Bruce, thanks so much for uh, joining us on Expanding Mind. Good to be back, Eric. Thank you. All right. Great. Folks, uh, thanks for tuning in. Next week, we'll be talking to Jeff Warren about meditation and uh, meditation for the rest of us. And uh, uh, till then, keep your minds open. Mm-hmm.